Well, very good morning to all of you. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. I'm looking forward to being with you face to face in a couple of weeks. Um, I have a little bit of a background with in town. Um, when I was serving at Sunset, my wife and I used to sneak away covertly occasionally and uh, and worship at in town and it just blessed our souls. So when the opportunity came up to support you in this way, I jumped on it right away uh, because of what you had meant to our family. So thank you very much for that. So as we come before the word, let's pray together. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. My family and I lived in the UK for about 10 years. We were in Scotland in particular. Uh, one time we went to visit some good friends over in the Western part of the country, uh, over on the banks of Loch Fyne. There are lots of lochs in Scotland. You've heard of Loch Ness. Uh, this was Loch Fyne. It's a large one, a beautiful area. And we were visiting our friends over there. And as we were walking along the banks one day, uh, my friend told me this story about when he was a very young child there at Loch Fine, and a storm was coming up. And he had to go with an older gentleman, very elderly gentleman that was experienced with boats on the loch. He had to go to retrieve another boat and help others get back to the shore before the storm arrived. Uh, they didn't make it. They got to uh, about partway out to this other boat and they got stuck and they could not navigate the winds anymore. So they had to anchor down for the night and they got battered by water and wind uh, all night long. And I looked at my friend and I said, you're just a young boy, you must have been terrified. And he said, actually, I wasn't terrified at all because the old man was with me. It was a poignant thought that because of who was there with him, he had no reason to fear. It's been quite a stretch for all of us personally and for the church these past year or so, hasn't it? We've been battered in many ways, as Richard prayed earlier, and we're still in the middle of it in some ways. What might give us some hope and some power to overcome it all and even to thrive in the middle of it? Unless you're following a Bible reading plan that forces you into it, my guess is that most of us haven't bothered to read the book of Jeremiah lately. But like other obscure, overlooked texts, we would ignore it to our own peril. The prophets were not simply strange men on the fringes of Israelite society who stirred up trouble. They weren't even primarily future tellers although we think of them this way, which is probably why they confuse us a bit. The prophets were primarily preachers who delivered the very words of God, and frequently those words were both reality-defining for God's people and deeply unnerving for the, hear the hearers. And Jeremiah, among the prophets, is particularly troubling because the story is just so dark and tragic. He's forced into a job he's disinterested in. 
He constantly laments his own circumstances and no one even bothers to listen to anything he has to say. I am not sure Jeremiah is the sort of preacher that would make it on today's Christian conference circuit. I mean, he didn't have a megachurch. Um, his two books are real downers, if you've ever read them. The crowds wouldn't come listen to this guy. Church ministry didn't go well for Jeremiah. Have I already lost you? Are you fully depressed now already? <laughs> We've barely gotten started. Perhaps you're thinking this is a classic case of the visiting preacher not understanding his audience very well. Because now, more than ever, Intown needs a positive, encouraging word, not the book of Jeremiah. Well, I'll admit it, it seems a little counterintuitive. But if we can lean into Jeremiah and the challenging parts, I think we'll find that it will take us unexpected places. God is, in Jeremiah, hard on Israel. And Jesus, if you've ever read the Gospels, is tough on the church. In fact, Jesus often seems to be more gracious to vile pagans than he is to his own disciples. He called his lead disciple, Peter, Satan. But somehow, when Jesus is tough on his church, he's simultaneously leading us into a grace that is very difficult for us to see. It's a grace that does something very important for us. It purges us. It purges our natural impulses for the American dream or for our personal comfort. And it not merely refocuses us, but it gives us brand new eyes. In fact, that's what all the divine preaching that we encounter in Scripture is for. It's for the purpose of redirecting us away from self-destruction and toward a full life. A life that thrives in the kingdom of God. But it's tough for us to hear that preaching. It's tough for us to accept it because we are so programmed to think that success and comfort are equivalent to a full life. Even in the kingdom of God. But the opposite is the case. Success and comfort in this life, according to Jesus, is closely tied to self-destruction. While death to self and death to ambitions and death to even family and church as we like to have it run is all closely tied to the good life. You try to save your life, you lose it. Yes, even death to church as something that we create and control. Church as mine, where I attend, where I have my ministry with my preferred pastor. After nearly 30 years of life and ministry inside the church, I know, I know I don't look that old. That's what you are about to say. I get it. But 30 years in life and ministry, I think I'm only now approaching being able to see 
how the American church for years has been rushing headlong into idolatry. And I think part of the reason is we think the church is ours. That everything we touch, that we own, and if it's ours, we expect it to be great and big and rich and emotionally satisfying and doctrinally precise and perfect with flawless pastors who write books and draw crowds. But what if with Jeremiah and with Jesus, we were to think of the church as an opportunity to die? Come on in, everybody. Here's the place where you get to trade your comfortable, rich, carefree life for one that's full of frustrating people who fail, disappoint, make poor decisions, use God talk to get their way and manipulate, manipulate you and just generally sin. Come on in, They're full of these people and you get the opportunity to love them. Die. Anybody signing up for that? The truth is that none of us, if we really understood what God's kingdom and the church were like, would volunteer for. And for hundreds of years, the church has been trying to kill itself. And yet, here we are with all our broken relationships, all our greed, all our celebrityism, our gossiping, our self-centeredness, all in the name of ministry. The Jeremiah way and the Jesus way doesn't fit very well with us. Come and die. It doesn't fit our notions of success and self-actualization. How in the world do we get anything done when we're always dying to self and deferring to others? I mean, we gotta be practical about this, right? How can the church thrive if we're stodgy and stuck in the past with all of these archaic views and practices. Is there any hope for us? How can we persevere in this kingdom work when every rational thought we have is to run away from it? Well, this is where Jeremiah comes in and he gives us a clue. The Lord gave me this message. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. See, the basic reality in life is not that we are on our own quest for ourselves, either inside or outside the church, in order to discover the good life. But rather, the fundamental reality of life is that God has encountered us. And he's done so long before it ever occurred to us to think about him. So it's not our life to control and to decide the direction we go. I am not my own. 
I don't belong to me. God is the before. Now, this is life flipped on its head. Because we operate under that basic assumption that we are the center of our own universe. And we find our way to God. But like Pete prayed earlier, the most basic reflection on the nature of things tells us that that is backwards. That God has made the initiative. And that we are responding to that before. We came into this world against our will. We came into a world that was already spinning with a history that long preceded us and will be here long after we're gone. And our default drive, normal default drive, is that we own our life. And that our journey is merely comprised of efforts to improve that. Even the church is here just to give me a better or more satisfying life. But this default drive will leave us disappointed and will create chaos and frustration, even with God and especially with his people. There has to be a different starting point. And that means there has to be a before, a before that might reorient us and help us see not only ourselves, but ministry in a new way. Before you were formed, Jeremiah, I knew you. Jeremiah, you're going to be asked to engage in a ministry that's too big for you and full of trouble. So the first and most important thing I need to say to you, Jeremiah, is before I made you and dropped you into all of this struggle, I knew you. Now, it's an intimate knowledge not simply an acquaintance. And it's more important that we are known by God than it is we know everything about God. Now that may sound strange, coming from someone who spent his life trying to get people to know God more, and that is good and right, of course. But we'll never get enough knowledge of God in this life to answer all of our questions, to secure eternal life, so that our faith has to rest in the fact that he has initiated that intimate, relational knowledge of us. God's been after you for a long time. And that's the fundamental truth about the Christian faith. God, the initiator. God is the before before you and me. I am not my own. Here's the way Paul puts it in Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sinners, not seeking after God, caring nothing for who he is, or what he has to say to us. While we were still sinners. No inclination for God. That's precisely when God gave his life for us. Not once we came around. And caught on. 
This is the before. Long before you got to God, he got to you. Now, this is great and terrifying news. God knows us intimately prior to the moment in time when he formed us in the womb, but that's comforting and unnerving. You know, when I was younger, uh, an adolescent, I remember adults in my life used to say this a lot to me. Hey, remember, God sees you all the time. Now, think back to your adolescent years. I don't think a 14-year-old boy or girl really wants to know that God is watching them all the time. And those adults knew that. And they were kind of saying, hey, even if I don't see you, God does. So don't do anything stupid. Now, I'm not sure we need to use God to give backdoor threats to our kids, but there is a sense in which the unnerving, frightening reality that God is so close that he knows what we're thinking is a poignant reminder that we don't belong to ourselves. We are not our own. Someone else owns us. He was before us. And the before pushes us to release ownership of our lives and live in what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a wonderful thing. As Pascal put it, fear not, provided you fear. But if you fear, not, but if you fear not, then fear. I can't help but think that so much of the trouble we create for ourselves, so much of the anxiety that dominates our lives, stems from forgetting that we, at our essence, at our core, belong to God Almighty. And this is no small thing. What would happen to our lives and our churches if we truly did release our own lives and lived in that fear of the Lord? God says, Jeremiah, before you were born, I set you apart and I appointed you as my prophet to the nations. See, God knew Jeremiah not just merely for his eternal well-being or for his own sake, but for the intentions that God had for him. I intend to do to you, Jeremiah, what I do with my son and what I do with all of his followers like you and me. Jeremiah, I'm going to give you away to the nations. You're going to represent me, not only to sinful, idolatrous Israel, but to the most powerful anti-Yahweh nations on earth, Babylon, Assyria, Egypt. And Jeremiah's response is what our response would be. Oh, sovereign Lord, I said, I can't speak for you. I'm too young. Represent me in the world, Jeremiah. I don't know if I can do that. That's what he says to you, and it's how we respond as well. Go to your work, and instead of gossiping, speak well of your lousy boss. Freely part with your money, especially if it goes to people who don't deserve it. 
the gap between what we think we should do and what God calls us to do is quite large because God's plans are always much deeper, heavier, and more significant than our plans. Jesus is tough on us because our calling is much more significant than for those outside of the church. We have the task of loving our sisters and brothers when they are particularly disappointing and annoying. We have the task of praying for and loving our enemies. We have the job of dying to our own desires when we think they're right, when we know they're right, for the sake of unity with God's people. We are called to be hated and mocked by the world when we simply refuse to call evil good. And so, it's a heavy calling, and we recoil, and we hedge on fearing God, and we reach out and we take hold of our own lives again, resisting the requirement to give ourselves away for the sake of Christ. So when it comes to our lives, and when it comes to that ministry, I am not my own. The Lord replied, don't say I'm too young, for you must go wherever I send you and say whatever I tell you. And don't be afraid of the people, for I will be with you and will protect you. I, the Lord, have spoken. And so in Matthew 16, that was read earlier, this familiar scene to many of us. Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. The fascinating thing about this passage, even though we are often taken with Peter's grand declaration, is the fact that Jesus doesn't elaborate on much of what Peter said, other than flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But then he goes on to talk less about himself and more about what he will do in and through Peter and his followers. Jesus declares who Peter is. Peter had declared who Jesus is, and Jesus says, no, I'm going to say who you are. And on this rock, Peter's name means rock, will I build my church. On his way to Jerusalem, he declares where he'll be placed on the cross, he declares to Peter, this ordinary, young, inexperienced, flawed follower of Jesus, like Peter, like Jeremiah, like you, and like me, he will build his church through us and save the world. Now, Peter believed Jesus. We know that based on what his life was like. But more than that, Jesus believed in Peter. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? I mean, Peter blasphemed and denied Jesus. Some rock, huh? No matter. Get up, Peter. Get up, Jeremiah. Get up in town church. 
and prepare for action. Straighten up. You are not your own. I have made you strong like a fortified city. For I'm with you and I will take care of you. Thanks be to God. Amen.